June 7th to 9th, um, Joe, Michaela, Michelle, and myself had the privilege of attending the annual Nate Symposium uh, in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Uh, so many, if not probably most of you, have not heard of Nate's before, so it's formerly known as, or currently I think, uh, the North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies. Um, it's part of a non-sectarian organization called Indigenous Pathways. Uh, it's dedicated to working together with the Indigenous community. Uh, to develop and articulate Indigenous perspectives in theology and practice. Uh, so they currently offer five degree program uh, partnerships offering undergraduate, uh, graduate and postgraduate programs. Um, they have campuses in Canada and the US and I believe now in one in Melbourne, uh, Australia. Um, but for the sake of keeping to our allotted 20 minutes, I encourage everyone to check out the Nate's uh, website for more information about the program. Um, so that's us there. Um, yep. Um, we, where was that? Peggy's, Peggy's Cove. Um, and then next. Okay, so there's uh, a drum circle. Uh, the top right is a photo of us and then Joe engaging in conversation in the background, as you can see. Um, and then that, the bottom two are just of the uh, Acadia campus, which was really pretty. Um, yeah. And we didn't take pictures of, well, we did take pictures of the ceremonies and like the circles, but we were asked not to share them just because they are very um, intimate and powerful ceremonies, so we don't have pictures of those for that reason. Um, so I personally had never been to an actual adult conference or symposium before, so I had no idea what to expect. Um, given the theme of the symposium, which was white supremacy, racial conflict, and indigen indigeneity? Yes, towards right <laughs> relationships. I anticipated some heavy content and was intrigued uh, to the discussions surrounding the topic. Uh, I certainly was not disappointed, but what I did not anticipate was feeling extremely unsettled and uh, very conflicted the entire symposium. Um, so my ancestors, as I'm assuming most of the congregation, um, are uh, migrating, they migrated over from Russia, Ukraine, Germany, kind of the whole Europe area. Um, and I've grown up my whole life believing that I'm from Canada because I was born here, my grandparents were born here, um, and I've never really believed otherwise. Uh, or thought to consider myself a settler, which is maybe a reflection on my own ignorance. Um, and I'm certainly not alone in this, um, sorry, as we were never taught in schools really until recently about treaties or any sort of indigenous history um, uh, for those who were here uh, sorry, I lost my place here. Uh, as we were never taught in schools about treaties or any sort of indigenous history of those who were here before the European settlers arrived. Um, actually, my first class I ever took in uh, First Nations history was in university just because I wasn't offered that uh, in school um, or high school. Uh, even then, we weren't told that we're not from Canada. So on the second day during a talking circle when the group leader, Casey Church, invited us to refrain from saying we're from, for me it was Saskatoon, um, because technically we, uh, meaning our ancestry, are not, I admit to feeling surprised and very defensive. Uh, I feel like most people would agree that majority of Canadians of European descent operate under the notion that we are from Canada, because we're all born here. Um, but this was a new idea to me, and my first thought was, I was born here, I've never known anything else, how can they suggest that I'm not actually from here? 
Uh, this conference was four months ago, but I still find myself struggling with this concept. Uh, perhaps the struggle comes from a fear of not belonging. If I don't belong in the place where I was born, where do I belong? Uh, I certainly don't feel as though I belong to the Ukraine or Germany or Holland or wherever else uh, my folks come from, as I've never been there. So why would I make a point to introduce myself as Julia, a descendant of a European settler from the Ukraine? But that's technically who I am. Uh, but whoever I am distantly related to who came and participated in the colonization of this land had no right to take the land and call it their own, which is what they did. I then realize if I feel unsettled, confused, defensive, and conflicted about not actually being from a land that was taken, I can't imagine the frustration and fear of not belonging to those indigenous to this land would feel and would have felt and continue to feel to this day. So ultimately, the symposium really drove home the fact that those of us who are not indigenous uh, to this land do not own it, and it's important that we acknowledge this as a way of working towards a right relationship. I felt many things at the Nate Symposium, and it's hard for me to put into one word what I experienced because it was an emotional journey for me. I moved through feelings of defensiveness, humility, inspiration, sadness, and restoration. When I, I think one thing that I thought about a lot during my time there was identity, and my identity as a Christian, as a Mennonite, um, as a woman, and especially when I think about my my identity as a Christian, I felt shame. Um, Christianity has not always been used for good work in our world. In fact, it has often been used as a weapon of discrimination against those who present an obstacle to white settler sovereignty and economic domination. The colonization narrative was a Christian narrative. We know this. Those who left Europe to settle in the new world did so with the assumption that the, what they were doing was God's will. When they arrived in North America, they devastated native populations in a variety of ways for centuries, all the while assuming that their efforts were divinely inspired. Sometimes it's easy for Mennonites to disassociate from this past. As Julia already mentioned, um, we had moments during the symposium where we felt defensive. Many of us are grandchildren or children of Mennonite immigrants and refugees, um, if not so ourselves. It's easy for us to say that colonization is not our problem, that it is not part of our history. We as Mennonites have known displacement. Most of our history is defined by loss of land. On a personal level, this struck a chord with me, not just as a Mennonite, but in my own life. I was born in Winnipeg and my parents moved when I was a baby to Southern Ontario to Kitchener-Waterloo. I grew up then a couple years later, they moved to St. Catharines in the Niagara region, and then I went back to KW as a university student, and then I went and lived in Guatemala for a year, and now I'm here, and I live in Saskatchewan, and I have had moments where I've sat by myself and feel like, what is my identity? Like, who, who am I? Because I, I have lived in so many different places. Um, and then, of course, in my history, I come from a long line of people who've moved from place to place. My paternal grandparents left Russia during the revolution, and my maternal grandparents were refugees during the Second World War and actually went to Paraguay before coming to Canada. As I said, this is a common story among Mennonite families, um, at least ethnically Mennonite families, I should say. Um, so what do we do with this reality? How do we acknowledge this and still own our part in the unequal and unjust treatment of our First Nations neighbors? 
Our ancestors came to Canada and adopted all the privileges that our European cousins had been monopolizing for years. Many of these Mennonite settlers were given farmland that was stolen from First Nation communities. Uh, we adopted the same lens as the long-settled colonizers before us, that this land was best utilized in agriculture, that untamed land was wasteful, and we assimilated very quickly, I think, into the colonialism narrative, whether it was conscious or subconscious, it, it happened. Um, but we were also suffering from something else. One of our speakers, um, towards the beginning of the conference, Alistair Reese, spent many years studying and working with the Maori people of New Zealand and explained the experience of settlers um, in New World places like New Zealand and Australia and Canada and the US um, as an existential crisis. Identity, so often for people, is tied to place. Settlers were inherently displaced, not only from their homeland, but from their sense of self. Mennonites are no strangers to this. Our history is displacement, often forced displacement. In my preparation for the Nate Symposium, I read The Inconvenient Indian, a curious account of native people in North America by Thomas King. And uh, Eileen, if you're here, I can finally give it back to you after all these months. I apologize for keeping it so long. Um, it's a great book, I recommend it. Um, in this book, King claims that white people have always have wanted something more than just assimilation of native people, uh, Christianization of indigenous people. Ultimately, the underlying drive for this is land. They want land. And beneath that, the driving force of wanting land is control. Um, yeah, for control. Um, control is about existential security. If we feel completely secure, or if we can control our environment, then we feel completely secure in who we are. Then our identity is no longer threatened. Two brilliant speakers, Adrian Jacobs and Jennifer Henry, who spoke at the, towards the end of the symposium, spoke about something particularly moving for me, that no one owns land. Land belongs to God. Asking what we own and what land we can call ours is the wrong question. Instead, we need to ask what land owns us. Moreover, what community owns us? What and who are we responsible to? We are all treaty people, not just because the treaties were made for all peoples living in this land, settlers and indigenous alike, but because we are, we are all treaty people because we are people of God. God is treaty. Treaties are more than political articles that determine right to land. It is time that we view the treaties as covenant, as an embodiment of God's promise. This paradigm shift is an important one. It reframes the treaties, not just as rental agreements, but as a reminder that we are responsible to all people who live on this earth. Our identity is not bound to place or to what we own, but in our relationship to all of God's creation. There is responsibility in this, but there's great joy too. Hello, everybody. Um, so throughout the conference, I felt a lot of things, and they were complicated feelings. But if you know me, you know that I'm basically constantly fired up about one thing or another. And so the conference was basically that. I, was, I felt anger towards the state of things. I felt shame for my, the role of my ethnic ancestors in colonization, um, you know, if they meant it or not. But I felt shame. And then I realized that my shame and anger and those sort of feelings are, they're about me. 
they're about my reactions to things, and they don't actually do anything. And so I made the conscious choice and, yeah, basically just made the conscious choice to turn that energy towards a feeling of motivation and a feeling of we have work to do and sort of, yeah, motivation to make the changes wherever possible, um, to use my privilege to challenge power and privilege wherever I see it being used for ill. Basically just, you know, speaking truth to power. Um, so the conference put me face to face with a lot of issues and challenges that we have before us um, in the journey of reconciliation and I want to pass those feelings of being challenged on to you. So, you know, don't slash my tires after this. But yeah, and that's the thing is I mean, <laughs> Feelings of discomfort are important. The places where we are uncomfortable is the places where we are learning things. And so this is a safe community and so I feel like this is the perfect place for us to sort of lean into that discomfort together and do some learning. So the main two things and basically what I'm going to talk about are the things that challenged me um, at the conference and the main two sort of things that that covered was colonization, what it means, what how it's ongoing, that kind of stuff, and what reconciliation means and kind of what the work is. So in terms of colonization, it's basically, I mean, if we all probably have a general idea of what it is. It's basically one culture, sort of usually a European culture, historically, um, basically coming in and taking over a new land in all, in all facets, all institutions, all... Um, well, basically institutions, social, economic, everything, and basically asserting that their way is the right way and every other way either needs to basically leave or toe the party line. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, they're, they're basically long-time issues, and so far our solution to these long-time issues has basically be, been to suggest that people need to finish the assimilation that started in residential schools, which is not a solution at all. And so basically having the idea of like, well, if you just, you know, if you just try to fit in a little more, then things would be better, and it's, that's not a solution, because we need to recognize that we are distinct groups with distinct histories, and the answer to creating harmony isn't about forcing one person into our sphere of things. Um, <clears throat> so another main part of colonization is recognizing the harm that has been done. So even just, I mean, and for a lot of us, we grew up and didn't know about a lot of these things. And so now all of a sudden we know, and it's easy for us to think, well, you know, I didn't know about this, so it's not a big deal or whatever. But the truth is that if we think about the intergenerational trauma, even that Mennonites have suffered, even that any groups that have been through genocide have suffered, we, we are so understanding. But when it comes to indigenous people, we think the, the why don't we just get over it phrase is pretty, pretty common. Um, and even just recognizing things like people had a better chance of surviving the war than they did surviving residential schools. And that's a pretty stark thing and the stats are there and it's crazy. And we're still uncovering mass graves of children. And so to basically try to say that it's time to get over it or we're in the modern time so it's time to move on is us being lazy about dealing with our history. Um, Another thing that we talked about was sort of decentering whiteness and naming its place in our institutions. And so basically just recognizing that most of the institutions that we have that aren't working for everybody are based in the idea that white and European ways of doing things are the normal ways. And so, and that's ingrained in all of us. It's, it's one of the things that we take for granted, which is why it's so hard to see it and it's so hard to do anything about it. 
because it's one of those things that if I suddenly told you, well, red and blue are different now. Like, blue is red and red is blue. And all, you would be telling me, well, no. And it would take you a really long time every time you saw blue to suddenly see red. But the fact is, that's, that's kind of what we have to do here. Um, it's important for us to recognize that the way we tell history is racist. Um, basically, a lot of the way that history is told is that indigenous people were part of the flora and fauna, that we came here, they were part of the landscape, and we just sort of came here and we're here. Um, so we basically, we ignore their entire history. We ignore the fact that they had successful civilizations for tens of thousands of years without overcrowded prisons, without big mass governments, without any of this. And we think, and the way the history is told is that basically Europeans came here and we brought the civilization. Like, we brought it here. How nice of us to bring them up, even though, I mean, and here's the thing that'll make us all uncomfortable, um, when we consider the fact that they literally could have just let us starve and die in the cold, and they didn't. And then the way that we have treated that, or the way that our ancestors treated that, was not great. Um, and we have so much to learn from our indigenous neighbors, and honestly, the fact that most of them are willing to share their knowledge is frankly amazing, considering the state of history. I participated in a pipe ceremony on Friday, and one of the speakers was talking about his history in residential school and the basically racism that he faces like constantly. And he was still willing to open the circle to us, to share knowledge with us, and to basically embrace us even though our history is not great. And we're, even then we were part of an institution that has done horrible things and is not doing great things. Um, moving into reconciliation, it's also not an easy answer. It's, it's an ongoing process. It's everyone's responsibility. Things like the TRC can make us feel like, when we have that list of actions, it can make us feel like there's an endpoint. There is no endpoint. We will never be able to check off all those things and be like, yes, we did reconciliation. It's done now. That's just never going to happen. Um, and so one of the speakers spoke about um, reconciliation as a social weaving. And so sort of a craft that is honed in practice, that we're all going to sort of stumble at it first. Nobody's going to be great at it. Nobody's going to be perfect. But it's going to take us all a lot of time and a lot of work to do together. Um, and we have to realize that as settlers, reconciliation means that it's important for us to listen with heart, uh, to lean into our discomfort and our shared history, um, to recognize what it means to be a settler and what it means to inherit a history of racism and paternalism and basically broken relationship. And so we've inherited the res responsibilities that come with a treaty relationship. None of us are exempt from it just because we weren't there at the signing or because we didn't draft an unfair contract or any of these things. If we're still benefiting from it, it is still our job to do the work. Um, and one thing with reconciliation, viewing, that it sort of turns to this and it's problematic. Viewing indigenous people as victims only continues perpetuating that paternalism and that, you know, oh, the white fathers need to come and help them because they're feeling so hurt about this past. And that's, yeah, it doesn't help anybody. So it basically continues that unhealthy power dynamic. The indigenous people in this country are extremely resilient um, despite repeated attempts to basically stomp them and their culture out. They have survived, their culture survives. They do not need our pity, they need the partnership that they signed up for. Um, and we need to view treaties as bill of rights for settlers. They are literally what allow us to be here. And so when anybody says that it's time to abolish the treaties or they're in the past, it's, it's good for us to remind them that that's literally the only rights we have to be here is those treaties. And if we're not 
like, if we're not living up to our end of the bargain, in any other place, that contract would be void, but we're still here, so it's time that we start sort of doing a bit more work. Um, and I'm sure you can see that the major takeaway for me is that we have a lot of work to do, and so I hope you're all, now that you're all as fired up about these issues as I am, and hopefully feeling a little bit uncomfortable, because like I said, that's where we learn, and it's important for us to feel those places in our mind where racism lives, even though you know, we all do our best, but the, chat, the, the fact of the matter is that we've been steeped in a culture that is racist and discriminatory. And so for us to sort of feel out where that is in our own mind and fight against it takes a lot of work. And it is, it is tough work, but it's something that we need to do and that we can do together. Um, but yeah, now that everyone's nice and fired up about these issues, I'll let other people talk. And then I will come back and talk about some practical everyday things that we can do to put this motivation to good use. What kind of car do you drive again? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no tire slashing required. <clears throat> How did I feel about the Nate's conference? Well, exhausted trying to keep up with these three. <laughs> Seriously, it was an honor to travel with you and I learned a lot from our processing together and so thanks for letting me be the token old guy in the group. <laughs> Um, occasionally I did need some personal space, so that's what was going on in that picture. <laughs> How did I feel about the conference itself? Like the others have said, that's complicated. I guess I'd mostly say I felt disturbed, and awkward and a bit defensive, but mostly disturbed. One moment from the conference that stayed with me was um, a conflict between two people. At one point, one of the presenters, um, a white, educated male settler um, like me, he made a comment about how scientific studies suggest that humanity as a species originated from Africa. And so at some deep level, we all have, um, in our DNA, we have this connection to these common African beginnings. And when he said that, I quickly fell in line with his point. I marveled at the interconnectedness of humanity and that our commonalities are far greater than our differences. And then he moved on and so did I because well, that's a really obvious fact. Human life began in Africa and spread out from there around the globe. But during the Q&A session afterwards, an Anishinaabe woman from Northern Ontario stood up and she said this, my people didn't come from Africa. Africans came from Africa. My white ancestors came from Europe. My Anishinaabe ancestors came from Turtle Island. We didn't come from somewhere to Turtle Island we are here because that's where God created us. Honestly, my first reaction was to be embarrassed for her. What a ridiculous idea. It's quaint, really. I mean, come on, science is very clear that the oldest humans lived in Africa. We know this for a fact. Well, I mean, I don't personally know this for a fact. I haven't seen the evidence firsthand, and I don't really know the specifics about any of the theories. But I've been told that that's true by sources that I trust, and surely they have their facts straight. And the facts say that we all come from Africa. Well, I guess the facts don't actually say that themselves. Technically, the facts are pulled together and interpreted into various theories by scientists who are trying to make sense of all the facts. Well, not all the facts. We don't have all the facts. And that's why scientists talk about theories, because we don't have so much, we only have so much observable information, and the scientists are ready to rethink things when new facts are brought to light. 
And that's one of the reasons I trust them, actually, that scientists don't claim to have eternal truth, especially on something like a theory of human development of like big theory like that, which is based on a relative few fragments of clues that have survived over hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, it would be ridiculous to make broad claims about human origins with any degree of certainty. We think we know some things, but we, don't just, we just don't have enough facts. Not yet, anyway. All this is going on in my head. And so I said, well, wait, why then am I so embarrassed for this woman who is presenting a different understanding of these facts that I don't actually know about myself? Why am I so certain that I know better than she does? I feel this great confidence in my worldview because I think that it's built on reason and observation and science. But reason and observation and science are actually far more skeptical and far less certain about what they claim to know than I am. True science, on its own terms, acknowledges its limits and the gaps in its knowledge. Me, I don't like to do that very much. As Jesus said, I love to point out the dust in the eyes of the other while ignoring the two-by-fours in my own eyes. That Anishinaabe woman, I can't remember her name, she asked if that story about all humanity coming out of Africa, if that story is actually part of white supremacy. And I wonder if she's right. What if the reason for my allegiance to that truth is actually just how well it fits into my own story, the story of my life? Of course, I find it easy to believe that humans started in one place and then went exploring and spread out over the whole world. That's kind of the story of my people, exploration, expansion, moving out and moving in, taking, taking over. That's what my people have done. That's the story of my life as well, moving around, moving in, coming to Saskatchewan, making my home wherever I choose. So it's really, really easy for me to believe a scientific story that confirms that, well, that's not just me, that this is human nature. But contrast that with this, this story of this indigenous people, with this one indigenous woman whose life and culture is defined not by moving and growing and conquering, but by remaining and enduring and truly belonging in and on and with a particular place. Why am I so skeptical of that story? Why do thoughts spring to mind about how naive that is, that humans can't actually live like that, that her ancestors, well, they were probably just as violent and greedy as everyone else, that every tribe tries to dominate others, that civilization is always bloody, that that's just human nature, that's just how the world works. What is it? Who's to say how the world works? That's the story of me and my people. That's our history, for sure. But how can I say that that's how the world works for all people and all places? That's a pretty self-serving conclusion. And that's what white supremacy looks like, in me anyway. Here is a gentle, thoughtful, courageous Anishinaabe woman, not only telling me that the story of her people is different, but actually showing me through her hospitality and graciousness towards me. And my response is to tell her that she's wrong about her people and herself, that humans are selfish and destructive and deceitful and domineering and that she's foolish to believe otherwise. That's white supremacy, not out there, but in here. And that's disturbing me. And it begs the question, which of us should really be in charge of things? What would a world look like where those of us with power would share it with people like her? But Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the nations 
lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave, just as the true human came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life in exchange for many. Okay, I know we've taken a lot of your time, and so thank you for humoring us. We won't take much more of it. We know we have youth to welcome, so um, we just want you to, uh, just to pull it all together, and as Michelle promised, she will lay some practical ways of moving forward on you, uh, but, but if you notice, through all of our testimonies, we used emotional language. I felt, I felt, I felt this, I felt discouraged, motivated, confused, uh, conflicted. Um, we felt that was appropriate for the, the experiences that we had because these conversations do touch the core of who we are. Um, what is it to be a white person? What is it to be an indigenous person, a settler, a Mennonite? You name it, it, it this, is, this, is, this touches like right to the core of who we are. And so um, you notice we put you in a circle today um, because this is, this is a conversation we're seeing each other and understanding ourselves and each other in this equation. Um, so we encourage you to keep talking and to, keep, and to talk to us and to think about this and to look inward rather than outward in processing this information. Michelle? All right, so fun. This is less doom and gloom than my first part of things. Uh, this is, the good news is that the work that we have to do has begun and we have concrete steps and we have ways to do it all together. Um, so there's some really great resources on the back table there, some really great books, everything like that. That's a really good way to sort of do the work yourself. It doesn't, you don't have to come out in public and be like, I'm a racist. I don't want to be, but I sort of am. And that's the thing. It's like, I'm racist. I, I work really hard to not be, but I probably still am somewhere. So it's kind of nice to be able to do that work in private sometimes and not yell it like I just did. Um, so uh, one of the great uh, resources that we got, it's called Strength for Climbing. And this is basically a really, really good, um, just a little leaflet. It's pretty, it's got a lot of great resources in there. And I realized when everything I was writing for, um, Good Practical Steps was already in here and in handy little things. So um, there's basically just like three main big things that I want to cover, um, which is to learn and unlearn is number one. So that's basically listening to indigenous voices, reading the books, looking in the media, talking to people. Um, although we do have to be careful about, um, we can't try to talk to our, like a token indigenous person about the issues of everybody. That would be like me talking to a German person and being like, how do you feel about the French Revolution? I know that you were in Europe when it happened. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't work like that. Um, so exploring issues affecting indigenous people and the responses to them. So that means it's really dry, but going back and like read the Indian Act, read the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, read, um, read the documents that were set out, try to determine the spirit of them, all that kind of stuff, and just do some fun reading. <laughs> Learn your family history. Figure out when, when your family got here. Which area did they come to? Did they have any contact with the indigenous people? What was it like? Um, and find indigenous history. It's harder to find because, like I said, winner writes the history, and so it's tough to find, but it is out there. Um, number two is building relationships. So that's with other settlers, so talking about issues, bouncing things off each other, 
Pe people are an amazing resource for working out your, your own personal issues, everything like that. Yeah. And with Indigenous people, um, this is super important to dismantle stereotypes. We all have these stereotypes in our head and some of the great books that talk about that, like uh, Michaela was talking about The Inconvenient Indian, which talks a lot about sort of the, the dead Indian and that sort of viewing people as like the noble whatever. And so um, realizing that our stereotypes are not good and that we need to realize the breadth of everybody and how they don't just fit into these little neat boxes that we would like them to. Um, and number three is to practice reconciliation. So small things, learn about your treaty. Like I said, read your treaty. It's going to be dry reading. It's not going to be very fun, but read it. See what it says. See what you think about it. Uh, be an ally. Speak truth to power. It's a tough thing to do. I have had to sit there and be really angry and tell my family that they were being super racist and is super uncomfortable and Christmas is always weird. But, but it's important because they need to hear it from me and they need to hear it from somebody who loves them that even if they're not trying to be, they also have work. Like They're also being not great and also have work to do. So that's an important thing and especially if you have the privilege, use it. Um, and advocating with your representatives, your members of parliament, everything like that. Um, read what they're putting out there. See, find out what their stance on the issues is. Bug them a lot if they don't have a good, if they're, if they're not talking about reconciliation at all, ask them why. Say, how could you possibly be ignoring this? Or what are you doing to help me put in laws that are going to help everybody? Yeah, so like I said, there are books at the back. Joe is going to post links to the lectures from Nate's and other info. If you have some time, I highly recommend listening to some of the lectures. The people at the conference were really awesome, very intelligent, very kind and they had a lot of really great stuff to say. So thank you all for listening to our various takes from Nate's. It was a great conference. We are so happy we got to go. And if you have any questions about it, ask any of us. We'll be happy to talk to you. And I challenge you all to continue these conversations in your own homes, over coffee, maybe not on the internet. That's usually a bad idea. <laughs> but just in general, just don't be settled. Just keep these conversations going. It's easy for us to forget about these things because when we walk out of the door, this conversation can be over for us because the society is built for us. And indigenous people, um, they can't walk away. They can never walk away from their ethnicity. They can never walk away from the issues. When they walk out of these conversations, even if the conversation was great, the world that is being terrible is still out there for them. So keep that in mind.